The beautiful thing about the new product is you've got lower expenses because you don't have repairs and maintenances. You've got warranties for the first year and you're really able to take that and stabilize the asset and then begin to really pump rents in the area. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad you invited me on. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Well, that's not difficult at all, Matt. I mean, it's Rocky Road. I mean, come on. It's, okay. It's one of the best in this classic. Okay. All right, now, are you a bowl guy or a cone guy? Well, listen, it depends on if I'm having more than one scoop. If it's just one scoop, I'd like to be a cone guy. But as you know, you get three or four scoops on that thing, and it gets a little messy with the cone. Yeah. We were out in Cali uh, over the summer, and I got three scoops. I mean, I I asked for one, and I got a huge ice cream. And by the time I walked out the door, it started melting. And I'm like, didn't didn't get a napkin like an amateur, and it was melting all over the place. Right. How, How could you not get a napkin, Matt? I mean, look at the name of your podcast. You think I would know by now. You think I would know. <laughs> All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? You know, I've, I'm in construction and development, and we syndicate capital for those deals. Um, I've been doing it for a long time, 28 years. I grew up in a in a family full of uh, contractors, developers. My mom was a third-generation realtor. So it was just kind of what I was destined to do if I didn't like college. And I went for a semester and proved I didn't like college. Yeah, I was doing some research. It sounds like you were a three, third generation, fourth generation uh, real estate guy. I did have my real estate license for, for a time there. Uh, my son is actually a fifth generation realtor. Wow. I'm also a third generation pilot. My son's a, fifth, a fourth generation pilot. So we kind of tend to make sure that our ancestors lived through it before we try it. You know, yeah. I think we're adventurous, but you know, we still hedge our bet. I love it. I love it. Well, um, going through your childhood um, and your family being a real estate family, do you think that prepared you to be uh, in this industry or did you kind of shun it at first? Talk us through that. You know, both of those. Uh, It definitely prepared me for it. I didn't realize it because my parents were talking about 1031s and pass the mashed potatoes. Uh, You know, that was normal conversation at the dinner table. I, I couldn't tell you how many times my parents had come in they start talking about something, get up from the dinner, leave, go to the office, figure something out, have a new building to build or a new tenant or whatever, because that's just how I grew up. But I hated it, Matt. I mean, look, Saturdays were work days. They were forced labor. So I was always cleaning up on job sites. I was always framing this or building a cabinet for that. And I really wanted to do something different. I thought, you know what? I really want, I don't want to be a blue collar guy. I don't want to work hard for a living. And so I got a uh, I got the crazy idea that I was going to be part of the computer information systems wave that was coming on in the early 90s. Uh, and so I went to college. Um, you know, like I said, I did that for a semester. They, Matt, they wanted me to show up every single day. I mean, what? You know, so it was just like high school, but harder. And I didn't like that very much. So I, I, I decided that I was going to go back and start building houses. I very quickly learned I didn't like homeowners. Uh, and so I went into the commercial realm. I built police stations, fire stations, uh, city halls. We did medical office. We did schools. We did gymnasiums. Um, we did all kinds of things. But I watched my father retire at 50 with cash flow off of just industrial buildings. And over the last 23 years that he's been retired, 
his lifestyle hasn't changed because those assets are still producing income at a su substantially uh, the same rate of return so that as the price of fuel and housing has gone up, so is my dad's income. And it's been really great for both of my parents. So you started off in building. Did you build before you ever owned any assets? You know, actually, uh, Matt, the first deal I ever did was a flip. I didn't know we didn't have these fancy terms that the millennials have given us, right? It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, it was, yeah, it was just a, uh, an assignment at closing. Uh, but I was working on a, a warehouse and I got to know my crane operator and I got to know the, the old lady that lived next door and she wanted to sell. So I didn't use my last $500, Matt, I'm going to be honest with you and your listeners. I used my only $500 to put an earnest money down on her property. I very quickly ran across the street, got with my crane operator and said, hey man, I've got a great place for you. It's three acres just like you want. It's got an old house you could turn into an office just like you want. And he goes, great, where is it? And I pointed right over there, right? And so I was able to flip that property and I saw the value in that, but I just didn't really feel like I had the capital to move mm -hmm. forward with that aspect. So I began to continue to grow my construction company. and. I kept watching me help people draw plans and develop buildings and buy land and do all this stuff. And the minute I was done building the project, I stopped getting paid. It, it was really weird. Like they actually followed our contract. And when we were done, we were done. And I watched them continue to make money. I watched them continue to have tenants and, and be able to conduct business out of it. And it wasn't long after that, about that time, my dad, you know, officially retired and, um, so I went out and I built my very first commercial building, scraped all my money together, uh, built a 10,000 square foot industrial warehouse. I had uh, four tenants in it. Matt, two of them are still there 22 years later, right? Wow. They have literally sat there and paid off the building, created cash flow. The rents have tripled. The value of the building has tripled. And it's been, it's been a great lesson for me to see that if you continue to invest in real assets, not liabilities, something you have to pay for, they will continue to appreciate in value and they'll continue to pay you all along the way. Where is that building? That building is in Nampa, Idaho. It's about 15 minutes from downtown Boise, Idaho. Uh, and it's it's been a great product. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you first started, were you only developing kind of in your central area where you lived or uh, how did that work out? Yeah, so I've been central here to Idaho for probably 25 of my 28 years in development. I've done some stuff in Montana for other people, but you know, it wasn't until, Boise's always been a great market. It's been a cash flow market, right? You could build something brand new where pricing was at, it would cash flow day one, and it was really awesome. Over the last couple of years, our secret's gotten out and people have come to town. Uh, you know, 67% of our new residents are uh, from California. Uh, and so we've, we've quickly changed that market and I've had to branch out from that, but I've taken everything I've learned in this market about how to really dive deep in the market and truly understand the market. Because when you deal with some of the smaller tertiary markets, you have to pay attention to what's across the street or where mm -hmm. the town's growing. You can't just go in like Walgreens and go, yep, it's a hard corner. We'll take it. And so I've really spent a lot of time diving deep into the other markets I've got involved with to make sure that what I'm investing in is truly a good investment long-term and it's in the path of growth. And that's been a pretty successful formula as we've branched out. 
So I'm interested in diving into that. So I think our listeners know, but I'll tell you too. I'm very ignorant when it comes to development. I've never done any development deals. My dad owned a steel building contracting erecting business when we were young. So I kind of understand that, but it was always, he came in and did one specific part. He never did it for himself or never did it um, to own the property. So when you're looking at a tertiary market and you go in and you're trying to build something there, how do you determine what is the best location? Is that the right market? That sort of thing. You know, Matt, that's a great question. And, you know, to defend your father a little bit, um, I think the, the percentage is like 78% of realtors don't own anything more than their primary home, right? So the fact that your dad built metal buildings and just built metal buildings and didn't do it for himself, he's not that unusual. Yeah. But, you know, to answer that question, we do market studies and I've, I've got a bunch of them on my website where I go in and I look at a market. And one of the main things that we look at is what is the inbound uh, new resident rate, right? Are you importing people or are you California, New York, where you're exporting people? Because you need job growth. The second thing that you're looking at is you're looking at what is the median income. Let's take Houston, for example. Houston's median income is less than $60,000 for a household. That's great for industrial. It means it's more of a blue collar town, but it doesn't really lead us to believe that we could produce new apartments in that market because they can't afford the rent. Because you can quickly take $60,000, 30% of the rents, two grand a month. That's gonna be a stretch for a lot of people. And that's really where new construction starts is around that two to twenty-two, $2,400 mark. So I can immediately cross that off my list of places that I would seriously consider new construction for apartments. And so we kind of just dive in and start ratcheting down and we've got about eight or nine markets that we really like. And that's where we focus on looking for development deals because I would much rather have the market prove me right than the market work against me. And what I mean by that is I'd rather do a good deal in a great market than a great deal in a good market. Because if I've got the market working with me I've got a lot more things going for me than Shannon built the nicest product in town, but it was a town of 12 and I created a 15 unit apartment complex, right? I mean, that's just, that has ignorant written all over it. And so once we find that, then we find the areas of town that are working, that are growing, where the path of progress is, and we try to locate a piece of ground in that path of progress. Once we've got that, you go through the entitlement process of making sure that you can get the proper zoning, all those kinds of things. You work with the cities, you develop your plans, you get all of that done, and you've got an entitled piece of property that then says, great, now we can go vertical with that. Once we get to the vertical part, that's where we start involving our investors. We take down the ground at that point, we go vertical with it, we build the product, we uh, tenetize it, and we are doing the original value add because we took sticks and stones and we created value by adding the tenants that added the cash flow that now makes it valuable to anybody. I mean, Matt, the truth is if I asked how many people out of a hundred, uh, you know, really serious investors, Wall Street guys, uh, hedge funds, private offices, how many people want to get involved in development, there'd probably only be four or five people of that hundred raise their hand. But if I said, I've got something cash flowing and I want a six cap for it, there would be 99 raising their hand. Cause there's always that one guy that won't do anything less than a seven, right? Yep. Yep. Well, uh, you said two things there and I want to get to one of them before I get to the other, but, uh, the first one is zoning. So when you start venturing out of your own market zoning, I feel like gets more complex because it's a very, 
you got to know somebody kind of thing. How, how do you, is that an ignorant opinion? How do you overcome that? Because again, I don't know much about development. Well, you know what? And, and here's the thing. I love Henry Ford uh, and his philosophy there. You know what? I don't know, but I know somebody that does. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you start looking at a piece of ground, you're going to find a decent realtor, right? Commercial broker that knows stuff. And the first thing you're going to ask him is, hey, who gets a lot of stuff rezoned in town? Somebody in his office is going to know them. Then you start talking with him. You find out who he knows at the city. You have a sit down with the city. I like this piece of property, guys. I'd like to do X, Y, and Z with it. What do y'all think? Because if they like what you're doing, then you've got tailwinds going through the process. I learned early on, you know, as a young man, I would go in there and I'd fight like hell and and do whatever I could to get my project approved. But then I had an approved project in a pissed off city. Maybe I got it approved, but now I had to go in and ask them for permission to do this or permission to do that. And everything seemed to be harder when I did that. So sitting down with the city, sitting down with a good planner uh, and, and a decent commercial broker will have a network that will include those guys. Uh, and you'd actually, Matt, be surprised. It's those questions that you think nobody wants to answer that are the ones that you need to ask because it's in asking those that the realtor uh, and the broker can provide value and they can help you along that process because they know that ultimately it's their connections that are going to get them paid and they want to make sure that that process happens. Yep. So when you sit down with the planner for the first time, what are some of those questions or conversations you're having with them? Um, You know, the first thing we want to know is, do you guys like this idea, right? Are you guys, what are you guys needing most in your city, right? We want to bring new construction to your city. Do you guys need more multifamily? Oh God, no, we don't. Or you know what we do, but they're only on approved bus lines. We like, we're, we're pushing for mass transit. So we really want to focus on those areas. Great. Is this in that core area? Where can I find those maps? How do I get more plugged into that? Um, and then what kind of you know, product are you looking for? Are you looking for three-story garden style? You're looking for, you know, seven-story elevated product. What are you really looking for? And what really floats your boat here? Because, you know, if, if you're trying to build, you know, seven stories of the cheapest thing you can, nobody's going to like that product unless they're looking for it in an affordability type product. And then you're ringing another bell. So, you know, we've gotten involved with cities and planners and, you know, when you get them on your side, when you're really looking to serve the city with what your product is, it's absolutely amazing to me how they will actually connect you with grant writers. They'll connect you with people that are involved with urban development. They'll really open doors for you that help you get your product not only funded, but ultimately built because it is an improvement to their city. What I'm hearing through this process is time more than anything. Well, that's true. When you find a piece of land, how do you de-risk yourself from making sure that you have an option on that while you go through this time? Like, give us some tips and tricks around that. You know, the thing that I've found best is is it's a well-written uh, contract. And I don't really do options because the option really ties somebody up pretty ambiguously. But I'll tell you about a piece of, uh, of property that we did. It, it ultimately took us 18 months to get it approved through the city because of some different issues that we found along the way. But I went in and I had $100,000 earnest money on a, I don't know, actually, sorry, it was a $500,000 earnest money on a uh, $5 million piece of dirt, right? So decent sized earnest money. The beautiful thing about that, Matt, is a promissory note. 
Because the reality is, if I didn't get my project approved, the money just sat there and was returned to me when it was denied. So I was able to convince the seller that full price was what I was willing to offer because I was looking at it as an entitled piece of property I was buying. So I totally took the risk out of it of what I would get at the end. So my contract simply stated I need to be approved for 200 units of apartments or more. I need to be able to do these kinds of things. I will, uh, within five days, three days of getting this approved, I will convert the earnest money to cash and I will release it to the seller. From there, I've got 60 days to close because I need to get it appraised. And so I'm very specific in what I'm wanting, but I'm very vague in what the process is. I'm very specific in the fact that once this purchase contract is done, within 10 days, I will have a meeting with the city. Within 30 days, I will have responses to their questions. Within 45 days, we will be scheduled, you know, so that the, so that the seller has confidence that not only do I know the process, but I have a schedule for them that at any time when I'm not honoring the schedule, I'm not just tying up the property looking for another buyer. And so by crafting a contract like that, we're able to tie land up that ultimately when the seller was really unhappy and wanted to pull the contract, we just simply asked them where we'd violated it. And they were unable to point that out. So we were able to continue going and they didn't really get thrilled with that. But at the end of the day, we were able to get the deal done. We were able to make a, a transaction happen and we were able to close at a price that was 18 months old. Have you ever um, bought a piece of property and titled it and then sold it off? Um, or is, no. that, is that a common strategy in your tool bag, I guess is a better You know, question. some people do that. Um, in, in 2007, I don't know if you heard it about it, Matt, but there was a recession caused by real estate. Um, really? <laughs> I'll explain it to you. It feels like getting thrown out of a moving truck and getting run over by a bus. But there was a lot of people that were doing that and they found it to be very unsuccessful. I had done a, a subdivision at the time and we had every single lot pre-sold ready to go to the builders and the developers and that market hit and I was unable to, to get one sold. So what I learned is that if I can't be my vertical solution, I'm not going to do the project. Now, does that mean I've gotten stuff entitled and been offered quite a bit of money for it? Yes. I've ultimately decided to keep it and go vertical with it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that does happen. It's just not a practice I want to do because now, I mean, look at the market cycle we're in, right? If you had yep. been working on entitlements from, let's call it October of last year, when it would have been a great idea, now you're sitting here with five other guys trying to sell an entitled piece of property to nobody that's buying, right? I, I went from seeing one, probably one uh, opportunity for development come across my computer from different brokers a quarter to probably see in five or six a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you go into a market that's outside of your area that you service typically or where you live, Idaho, let's say you're developing in Houston, you've got the property, you've negotiated it, you've got it zoned. How do you find like a GC in that area? Give us some tips and tricks on how you'd go find a good GC in that area. Cause I'm assuming you're not flying guys down from Idaho to go build that thing. No, you know, that's not a, and the, the best thing that I know is that it's about relationships. You know, during COVID, we saw a lot of people's projects get hung up and delayed, and ours were as well. But we were able to get a lot more done with the relationships that we'd created. So really what I like to do is I like to go into the market myself, 
uh, I find the general contractor that's doing the type of product that I like, that I want to be pursuing. I get some more information about them, and then I have conversations with them about how we want to do this. Typically, you know, there's a lot of times when people will come in and they'll start drawing plans and they've got this really grandiose set of plans and man, it's absolutely fantastic. Usually the reason that happens is because architects draw the plans based on a 3% fee on the total cost. So they're not using the cheapest toilets and you know, the, the, the carpet that works. We tend to do that a little bit backwards. We would go find the property management company, find out what they felt was gonna be the product for our market, find out what the rents were for that, and then I'll build out my spreadsheet. I know the plumber is 7.4 to 7.9% of my budget. So I can know that, hey, I've got to be able to build it at an eight cap, right? That's my, that's my module. Build it at an eight cap. Here's my profits. Here's what I have to construct with. Here's my interest carry costs, these kinds of things. And then I know what my plumber can be in that kind of stuff. So we'll go to a general contract and we'll say, hey, can you help us develop this set of plans based on these budgets? And who's your go-to guy that is in, in the plumbing and the heating and air and the concrete and all of that? So we assemble our subcontractors way before we ever get the plans drawn. Because I'm going to be honest with you, Matt, plumbers are way better at designing the systems than engineers are, right? Engineers are kind of like doctors. Whoever came in and told them about this new beautiful toilet and this really expensive new pipe that's going to revolutionize the world is what they're putting into my plans. But if the plumber knows he's got $6,000 a unit to plummet, he's going to tell the engineer what he's putting in it. So then fast forward, we're done with the set of plans. It goes out to bid. The plumber, we already made this relationship. We already know each other. We already know he's going to hit my budget. So I don't need to bid it out. He put in the work beforehand, knows the project intimately, and is ready to go on the project. So we're always looking at how can we come in on budget and work with these guys from the beginning. The other thing that that does, Matt, is when we're done, it's really hard for you to have told me how to draw this for $7,500 a door to come back at me with a change order. Right. right. Because you're the one that said you could make this budget happen, and it was going to be this, and it was going to be that, and you intimately know the plans and probably had a hand in hiring the engineer that drew them. Yeah, so, so you again, are almost reversing it like saying hey this is what Completely. you're going to spend on this can you do it yes or no and if you can't that's fine but if you can then don't come back to me with a change order that's right and that's you probably because i'll ask the you know whoever it is who do you like for engineering because again i got no dog in the fight and i don't have the contacts in that marketplace and if he says man sam over there at you know atlas engineering is a great guy good let's get him on board let's keep him on budget so we we take the the, the tripping places out of our deal way before. Cause again, we started with the rents and we didn't start with the rents that I think I can get. We started with the rents that a prominent property manager in the area knows that they can get. So based on those, we're able to build a model that really works. Interesting. Interesting. Well, how do you find your GC to start that process then? Is that you in know, your commercial again, broker same network? Same way, right? Yeah. We like to work with GCs that are in the design build mode. They work with people to help design plans. They know they're going to put in more effort up front, but they're intimately going to know it. And then we like to work with cost plus contracts because ultimately there's going to be some fat hidden in there somewhere because nobody's going to do it and lay all of it on the table. But we know that we're going to work in a cost plus manner. 
We're also going to have savings in there. If you save me money, you get a piece of that back as the general contractor. And if you save me time, get me to my cash flow faster, there's going to be money in there for you for that. So instead of de-incentivizing them by putting in liquidated damages, we incentivize them to shorten the schedule and save money by giving them monetary compensation for doing just that. You attract more bees with honey? Is that what it is? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then you use a two by four if you need to. <laughs> what uh, what are you doing with these properties now? Are you selling them off to investors? Or are you keeping them in house? Like, what's your general disposition strategy right now? You know, I came to this conclusion a couple of years ago, Matt, that there are two or three different types of investors. Really, there's those that want cash flow, and those guys are typically forty-five to sixty-five, seventy years old. There's those that want appreciation, that understand that the $200,000 that they have at a 6% cash on cash isn't going to float their boat, and they need to grow that. And they're typically younger. And then there's the people who are really busy professionals, doctors, lawyers. They're making three or $400,000 a year, people in the tech market, but they're getting clobbered in taxes. So you've got the tax guy that's investing, you've got the appreciation guy, and you've got the cash flow guy. Don't worry, I'm getting to the point. The cash flow guy is the one that wants to buy the finished product. The appreciation guy loves the idea of being involved in, in development, doesn't need the cash flow, and is looking to appreciate his funds as quickly as possible. So typically, we go after the, uh, the appreciation guys, and then when we're done, we exit that group and bring in another group that's looking for the cash flow because it's hard enough to find good product, so you don't really want to sell it. But if you start taking a let's call it a 23, 24, 25% IRR that's associated with a building project, and then start figuring in 3, 4, 5% rent appreciation, you really start to torpedo your ROI. So you exit that group, you bring in the group that's just looking for that cash on cash, is looking at maybe a 15% ROI uh, or IRR, sorry, uh, on the on the three to five year hold is, is looking at it, but they're really concentrated on the cash flow. The beautiful thing about the new product is you've got lower expenses because you don't have repairs and maintenances. You've got warranties for the first year and you're really able to take that and stabilize the asset and then begin to really pump rents in the area. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. It's funny you say that because I was just having this conversation with an investor over, he's got a local car wash in his area. We do a ton of car washes. He's got a local car wash in his area. And he's like, you guys are just paying way more. And I'm like, investor, this, this product is three months old. There are yeah. no uh, maintenance costs or expenses, yeah. CapEx expenses that we should have on this property for the next five years, at least. Right. Whereas yours, you might, you don't even know what you're walking into there. So it's funny <laughs> right. that you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. You got a steamer with Ben Franklin's initials on it, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> So do you almost refinance out your initial investors with different types of investors? Like you were saying, the cash flow investors? Yeah. 
Yeah, because you know when you're building a product, you're building with construction financing, which is a variable rate debt. Then you're going to stabilize it, and you're going to you can usually skip the bridge product and go straight to a permanent financing mm -hmm. and bring in the other investors at that time. So yeah. typically, when you go to sell it, there's about eight to ten percent in sales costs between the real estate commissions, the closing costs, the title insurance, all those kinds of things. And you've got a lot of that that you can cut out so you can get an appraisal. You can say, hey, guys, this thing appraises for $40 million. We'll pay $40 million. You guys get 3 to 5 8% more because you're not involving a realtor. You're not having a ton of closing costs. We'll take it from here. So everybody's getting a fair deal on it. We disclose that kind of stuff up front. But at the end of the day, they're getting into a brand new product with warranties and everything else and the, the ability to start raising rents. Because as you know, Matt, when you go into an area and you're just slightly above, that first round of tenantization has a lot of resistance built into it. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people pushing back on that. And so if you can take that up and just get through that first round, when you go to renew, a lot of people don't want to move out of brand new because they like brand new for a reason, and there's not more brand new right next door. So they're willing to take that $150 to $200 rent bump on that first round that gets you to a place where the cash flow is looking pretty decent. Got it. Got it. Um, so in this context, we've been talking a lot about industrial and developing industrial. Um, part of being involved in industrial is this idea of triple net leasing. So I would love it if you could define what triple net leasing is and then talk us through this idea of how you hedge against inflation since inflation has reared its ugly head over the past couple of years for the first time in, I don't know, 40 years. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because I've been doing this for so long, Matt, we've always had this funny little thing in our leases called a CPI rider. A lot of people didn't know what consumer price index was until three years ago, but we've had this, this clause in our lease that says you will receive a 3% rent bump and or CPI, whichever is greater. Now, let me back up before that and let me talk about what triple net is. A triple net lease means that the all of the net operating expenses, in all fairness, are completely a cost to the tenant. That means that when I get my insurance, I'm not marking it up. When I get my property tax bill, I'm not marking it up. When I pay for the, lawns, uh, the lawn care, the tree that needs to be replaced, uh, all of the furnace service that needs to be done, I'm paying for all of it. But you're being billed back as the tenant and you're reimbursing me. So the good news is you're never going to pay more than the actual expense of running the building, including property management. The bad news is you're going to pay for it. So instead of un, uh, unlike an apartment complex where your, your, your rent's $1,900 and we're somewhere between 28 and 39% uh, expense, depending on the age of the property, what we're doing for amenities, how we're taking care of it, we're actually only charging you rent and the exact triple net. So the first year we'll estimate it. We're going to say it's uh, 10 cents a foot. You've got 2,000 square feet. Your bill is going to be, you know, uh, based on that, you're going to know exactly what you got to pay. At the end of that year, we'll reconcile that. And, oh, look, it turned out to be 2 cents. So you owe me 2 cents immediately, and we're going to set next year's goal at 23 cents, and that's going to be our new triple net. And so tenants recognize that. Tenants go into longer-term leases on industrial. Typical industrial lease is usually a five-year lease. So in that, we know that they're going to uh, advance the rent at least 3% and or CPI. 
We know that as costs grow, the tenant's going to pay those as well, which as you guys are experiencing in the, in the, in the South, especially in Texas and Florida and, and the Gulf Coast states, you're experiencing insurance going nuts. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about that because as my insurance goes up, I front the bill, turn it back to the tenants, and they pay it. So the reality is at the end of the day, my rent number is my income, right? So I'm getting to keep all of that. So I have a very simple calculation. I've got a quality credit tenant, usually has a balance sheet of some sort. Uh, They've got real assets. They're building a business, Matt. They don't want to move that business every five years. So that's why I still have tenants in there 22 years later, because one of them makes gelato ice cream. And just the act of taking that freezer apart, not making ice cream for two weeks, moving to a new location, setting it up, all the sanitary sinks, all the inspections that need to happen, it's just not worth it. So they pay the rent increase, right? So when you combine all those factors, it's not near as sexy as multifamily. I mean, multifamily, you've got people moving out in the middle of the night. You've got people moving out because they break their lease. You've got people moving out because the upstairs neighbor's noisy. You've got people moving out for all kinds of reasons. You, got, you have maintenance calls at 2 in the morning. You have all kinds of things that happen that aren't really happening in a business setting in a, in a warehouse environment where people are working 8 to 5. And they're not working on the weekends usually. So you've got a very stable asset class that I find to be the backbone of our portfolio because of the stability. And no, we haven't seen prices run up like they have in multifamily. We've seen rent appreciation. We just have to wait to catch that on that end of that lease cycle and bring them back to market. But man, what would you rather have? A tenant that calls once every four years and he's in there for five? Or somebody that's calling... Uh, all the time or you're having to re-tenitize every 12 months they take it personal that you know the dog parks out of service or the swimming pool had to be cleaned or you know all those kinds of things these other guys just want to be left alone to run a business yeah i think of triple net as like almost a bond wrapped in real estate like there's not a ton of upside that you're going to get in a triple net lease but you are going to get consistency and very very little downside whereas in some other forms of real estate, you might be able to appreciate it faster, but there's also risk with people moving out, big expenses happening that now you have to front, et cetera. Well, and Matt, you know, you've been involved in real estate, did you say since 2016? That's right. So we've been on a pretty serious upward trend in that time period. How'd you like to be sitting on a triple net lease through nine, 10, 11, and 12? Right. So, you know, you didn't go as low in the real estate side on, on, on the triple net during that period, but you also didn't go as high in 19 and 20. Now I have, we just bought an asset in Houston. We bought it because the guy built it during COVID. He hurried up and finished uh, the tenancy on it. He's got everybody in there at a decent rent, but they're slightly under market. All of their leases expire in the next 18 months on a brand new building that had 4% assumable debt on it. Here's the other thing. When you look at financing on triple net deals, it's usually done with life insurance money, which will be a slightly better rate than the market, but they have prepayment penalties in there, so they love assumptions. So the ability for us to assume that debt, the life insurance company was tickled, right? They got some some fees for that, but we're locked in on nine and a half years of 4% money. Beautiful. Everybody wins on that deal, and it's a very calculatable thing. Beautiful. Um, Shannon, before we go into our last round here, what, what are you working on now? What excites you? What are you interested in? You know, one of the things that I've found, Matt, 
after almost three decades in the business, I found that I have a lot of information. There's not one aspect of real estate I haven't done, uh, whether it's move a house, fix and flip, anything like that. And so I found myself actually kind of stepping into an area that I never thought, but it's into the coaching aspect. And I find myself working with a lot of people in helping them take their business to the next level by providing insight from a different point of view, having done this through three recessions, heading into a fourth one, uh, being able to really come alongside people that are not novices. They know what they're doing, but being able to really use my portfolio and my Rolodex to help encourage them and take their businesses to the next level. So it's been an exciting uh, evolution for me because, like I said, it was something I never would have thought I would be doing 10 years ago, even two years ago. Gotcha. So is that what the intelligent investor is on the shirt there? That's pretty much what we're doing there. We're trying to make a more intelligent investor, Matt, because I know for a fact if we'd had more intelligent investors, 08 would have never happened. Yep. Yep. Well, I want to shift this now into our last round. It's called The Five Toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? You know, one of the ones I've really enjoyed, I read it about a year and a half ago. I had a chance to meet the author, got some more insight, is the book Never Split the Difference with Chris Voss. I love that book because, you know, growing up, I always read spy novels and stuff. Now I get to see how hostage negotiation and contract negotiation are very similar. How am I supposed to do that? It's funny you said that because, like, I, I get a bit of a Chris Voss vibe from you. Like, you you just very even tone. You've got good structured answers. Um, so I, I get a bit of that vibe from you. I'm still working on the midnight radio voice, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. And the uh, I'm going to go save a hostage from a, right, from a terrorist. Exactly. But, um, well, our second one is I believe in the things you do. Ten, I be, Our second one is I believe that the things you do every day make you the person that you'll become 10 years from now. What are some of the things that you do every day? You know, some of the things I do every day is I take care of myself, right? There's got to be downtime for me. There's got to be time for me to think. There's got to be time for me to take care of my health. Because if I'm not showing up in the best condition I can be, then I'm not really serving myself, my company, my investors to the best of my potential. And it's become more and more apparent. And it is, I'm, I'm a week out from my 50th birthday. So it's becoming more apparent as I roll out of bed every morning that I need to take better care of myself. But I always know that if you're not taking care of yourself, how can I really think that you're going to take care of my money, my investment, my property, and things of that nature? Hey, man, I had our son jump on us last night, and he likes to do this thing where he runs and jumps on us, uh, jumps on me. And uh, speaking of getting old, I woke up with back pain this morning. I'm like, oh, no, it's starting to happen. It All only right. gets worse, my friend. It only gets worse. Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, I think the best piece of advice I ever got was from my dad. And my dad's best friend growing up was a guy by the name of Wayne Gross. He paid, played for the Oakland A's. And I remember I came in, I was really discouraged. This deal wasn't going right. I was working too hard. I was not getting paid near enough. In fact, I think I lost money on that deal. And my dad just used the analogy and he said, you know what? He said, a major league baseball player that hits the ball one-third of the time, a 333 batting average, will be absolutely killing it dollar-wise, will be getting paid handsome sums of money. Son, if you can do better than a major league baseball player, you're going to crush it in this world. 
And obviously in real estate, you can't fail at two thirds of your deals. But the analogy has always stuck with me and I've always looked at that because there's deals that go great, there's deals that go good, there's deals that don't go, there's deals that go bad, and it's sorting those out, learning from those and moving forward. Going back to batting practice and making sure that you can, when you have the opportunity, connect and put it out of the park. Yeah, it, it's hard to do in the moment, but absolutely, I think that perspective, like one, in, uh, what is it, 400% is the best of all time. So if you can hit the right, ball four exactly. out of 10 times, you're, you're and, doing And then the right. argument is whether or not they were on steroids, right? Right, right. <laughs> uh, or if they bet on baseball. Sorry. Right, Pedro. exactly. <laughs> Our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life? You know, I think I'm most proud of my kids, honestly, and I know everybody says that, but you know, my daughter just showed up in Lebanon uh, yesterday uh, on a mission. She got there all by herself at, at 24 years old, uh, traveled solo. I've got a son that's pursuing a business degree, worked with me for four years, but all my kids are very healthy individuals that are pursuing their own path and their own track. I'm just wondering how long it's gonna be before they boomerang back to real estate. I, I was going to ask, are either one of them in real estate? <laughs> My son was for a while, but then we had this point where he got smarter than I was. And so he's headed out on his own and he's really developing in his own identity, which I think is huge so that he can identify why he wants to do it, not doing it for all the reasons dad says you're supposed to, which is the same journey and path I had to take. Yep. Yep. I, I was laughing because I'm like, wait, he's just now finding out he's smarter than you. I mean, I heard that <laughs> happens when you're about 12. Well, they do it, but they go through cycles, right? I mean, right. you know, you're the smartest guy in the world to about 12 or 13. Then you get really dumb really quick. And then when they move out of the house about 18, you start gaining intelligence again. But but it takes on a whole other dynamic when you work with them. Yeah. The older I get, the smarter my parents become, too. That's That's right. Our fifth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, gosh. Uh you know, I think I'd want to sit down with Thomas Edison, uh, you know, because here's a guy that had the ultimate mindset, right? He, I mean, the guy literally was told you failed 10,000 times and he comes back with the answer of, no, I figured out 10,000 ways the light bulb doesn't work. I don't know that I would have the tenacity to do something 10,000 times. So I'd want to know what kept you going and what did you do to keep your mindset right? Because 10,000 times is ridiculous. That's a lot of times. In fact, they say that if you do something 10,000 times, you're an expert at it. But Thomas had to do it 10,000 times to get it right once. Yeah. And I don't know much of his story. I need to actually listen. It's reminding me to listen to a podcast in my queue, but ultimately his success in business is why you know him too, right? Like, right. can you think of who, who invented the printer, who invented the computer, who invented the internet? No, you can't. But the reason right. why you know Thomas Edison is not because he invented the light bulb, which he was one of the first founders of the light bulb, but he commercialized it as well and lit the whole exactly. city of Manhattan. So exactly. And when you look at that business sense, you know, uh, was it Nikolai Tesla invented many more things than him and in, and in some cases safer things like the way that electricity is transmitted. But all we remember is Thomas Edison because he was the businessman that commercialized it and Tesla died penniless. Right. And by the way, uh, GE was Thomas Edison's company. So if exactly. you go to GE, exactly. you know Thomas Edison's business. That's exactly right. Well, Shannon, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you or what you got going over there at the Intelligent Investor, where's the best place we can point them? 
You know what? The easiest way to find me is just shannonrobnet.com. Remember, Matt, I'm in construction, so I got to keep it simple. But if you go there, you can get podcast episodes. You can get a copy of the book I've written. You can uh, even find my schedule there. Uh, get on a call, take 15 minutes, figure out what we can do to help you uh, and get all of our social media aspects right there. Awesome. We will leak those in the show notes. And then Shannon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.